What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Pat. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) If I was to mention to you something like Audi, Porsche, BMW, what would come to mind? Mm. German quality engineering. Exactly. Mm. So if I was to say to you... German Shepherds and Dutchies from Germany, what would then come to mind? House Amberg. Why is that? Because probably some of the best German Shepherds and Dutchies on the planet Absolutely. come from House Amberg German Shepherds and Dutchies because you know who breeds those bad boys? Patrick and Alicia Lockett. They're a power couple in the dog breeding, brokering, selling and shipping them all over the world. And they po po world as well. Yeah. Yeah. Both they po po guys. Yeah. Yeah. They know their shit and they, they breed good dogs and they can ship them to you anywhere in the world. And now a proud sponsor of the canine paradigm. Yep. Mm. So if you're after one of those bad boys, get in touch with them. Yep. House Amberg. House Amberg. House Amberg. Wait, before we fade off into oblivion, we've got to mention their website. Yes. You can get in contact with them at Wuh, wuh, wuh. <laughs> dot House Amberg Shepherds. And that's H-A-U-S-A-M-B-E-R-G-S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D-S. So it's house like a German house. Dot com. Wow. Or you can find them on Facebook. Hey, Glenn. Yes. Guess what? What? New year, new ad. Oh, I like it. I thought you were going to say new year, new you. Nah, I'm still the same shitty version of me. <laughs> you know who's not a shitty version of themselves anymore? Go ahead and tell me. The boof head. The fading boof head? Einz a wiener. Oh, my God. Einswick dog quip. Yes. Jason's only half the man he was uh, a year ago. I know. He's on an amazing journey. But Incredible. he still sells. Amazing equipment. The best equipment you can get in Australia. Yes, he does. If you want dog training equipment. He's the only man to go to. Yep. It turns out it's not just equipment either. He did those cages for my car. I know. they're fucking rad. They are really good. Yeah. He's got a new range of stuff. There's a new line of gear. I think it's called Klim or something like that. Klein. Klein, is it? Yeah, I think Klein. Klein. That's how I read it. Yeah, Klim Klein. Anyway, they make mad stuff. Yeah, really good stuff. Yeah. So I've got to do a little review for him on that, but go and check out his website because he has got one. Yes. Yeah. Ein's a wiener dog quip. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can't help but say that. Einzweck. E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K. Yep. Is it? Is that correct? Yeah. Einzweck? Yeah. Einzweck Dog Quip. Check it out. If you're in Australia, that's the only place you should be getting your dog gear from. Yep. None of those other places. That's right. Just go straight to the buffet. Yeah. Just say, hey, buffet, give us a deal. Now, I know you North Americans mm. are probably just like, God damn. What I about us? I could buy some of that what stuff. What about me? Yeah. So I think if you want treadmills, you can actually still get them through Jason because mm-hmm. he sort of just is the middle guy anyway. And he knows he that. knows who's making the good meals yeah, he and knows who's meals. not. Yep. Mm. But if you want other dog training equipment. Mach le point. Mach le point. Yes. Yeah. It's French for Mark. All around good guy, Canadian. Amazing guy. Mach very, very good man. Yeah. Yep. And he's got everything. He's like Canine Dynamics has bite training equipment, leashes, tugs, all the normal stuff you'd expect to see. They are a, dynamic. Yeah. Mm. His website is much better than Jason. 
How dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> it's a fact, too. <laughs> I actually was a client of Canon Dynamics before mm-hmm. we knew MacLapoint. Yes. And the, the purchase process was seamless. Yeah. The website's amazing. It's very good. It's very detailed and it's laid out well. And he yeah. covers all of North America, yeah. which Canada is included in that as well. Well, yeah. he's in Canada. Yeah. Ma- Canada Dynamics is Canadian. Yes, I know. Yeah. Yeah. He's, so, yeah. he's in Ottawa, isn't he? Uh, something like that. Yeah. No. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's in North America. If you want dog training And he supports our show. Thank Get you. Get it from there. Thank you, Machla Point. We have one other sponsor. Yes. Melanie Benware. Yep. Kindred Canine. Kindred Canine. Yep. From the train town itself, Ashland, Virginia. Yep. So if you need in-home behavior modification. Yep. She'll come around and look at We did a whole episode on- We did. The way she does it. She yeah. very kindly gave away her whole business model to she everybody. Yeah. At so the end of 2020. The homeschool program. If you know someone that needs the homeschool program, yep. get them on to Melody Benware, Kindred yes. Canine. Yep. Or, you know what? what? People should probably, if they want to learn more about homeschool program beyond what she gave away for free on the show. Great idea. They should get in contact with her and yep. she should charge them to teach them about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mel, we just opened up a whole new revenue stream for you. Absolutely. You're welcome. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And joining us on the phone all the way from, where are you, New England? Is that what you said? Yeah, Massachusetts. Yeah, it's Jen Banks. Hey, how are you? Hey, guys. Hey, Jen. I'm good. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I stumped myself then when I was about to say where you are because I'm, I was picturing Fitchburg and I was like picturing your house in my head and I was picturing my little bedroom up there and then I was like, oh, no, you've moved. I have moved more rural, believe it or not, mm-hmm. and uh, more space. Still a bedroom upstairs, two bedrooms upstairs, but no more uh, dogs barking in crates right next to you. I'm not doing any more <laughs> boarding trains. So 2020 was a big year for a lot of people. And uh, one of the reasons I reached out to you is because I just... My whole life has changed since I saw you guys last. Like, like I'm a completely different person since I saw you guys last. And I really wanted to catch up and uh, share some thoughts I have on pet dog training and whatnot. And oh, yeah. you had a little human. Yeah, that's a big reason why I wanted to come on the show. I had a little human and then started integrating her into my life with my dogs and realized that I'd given a lot of crap advice to new moms. (laughs) 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 All right. So hang on, hang on. Wind it back a little bit. We've got to establish who you are. This is how it works, right? So we've established you're a new mom and you got the beautiful baby shower gift that I sent was a 24 kilo kettlebell, which now Jen has to move, move around with her for the rest of her life. But let's take a step back. It is in my basement. Ready for me to get there and eventually use it. Who are you? How did you get into dog training? Let me set the stage a little bit in that we at the gala dinner at the ISCP sat next to each other in, what was that, 2018? That was in Florida. Whenever whenever it was in Florida. Florida. At St. Pete's Beach. And talked a lot of shit to each other. And then you reached out later and was like, hey, would you like to come to America and do some teaching? And you're actually the first person in America to get me out, which is a huge debt I actually owe you on that. So I really appreciate that. But let's take a step back. You have your own business. You do in-home behavior mod classes, all that kind of stuff. But before that, you worked in assistance stalls. How did you even get to that point? 
Yes, I'm lucky enough to have a program pretty close to me. When I was, you know, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, getting ready to graduate high school, going to college, I knew that I never wanted to sit behind a desk for a job ever. And I, of course, I wanted to like go down to Florida and work with dolphins and do all that, which was just not as easy to do living in New England. But I had this service dog program not too far from me. And I went and I started volunteering there. I was like 16 when I started volunteering there, just scooping kennels and bathing dogs and running play groups and When I was a senior in high school, I actually got to go work there for the final part of my senior year. So instead of going to school, I went and I worked with one of their trainers and they did prison-based training. So not only was I, it was like a full day job. I just didn't get paid. I don't think it's legal (laughs) here anymore to do that actually. So I would go work her dogs in the kennel. We'd take dogs into public, work on public access I'd help her run the the classes at the various prisons she was working, and I'd help her when it came time for the clients to be matched with the dogs and all that. Uh, Super cool experience. So I did that for a few months, then went off to college. And um, it was at the end of my freshman year in college when I got a call that she was pregnant and getting ready to go on maternity leave, and they needed a new trainer like super fast. So I started, uh, that was... 2008 or 2009, I think. Mm -hmm. And I worked there for about eight or nine years. What kind Uh, of service dogs were they? So mostly dealing with uh, people with physical disabilities. They were originally, the program started as a hearing dog program. Mm -hmm. So they would recruit dogs from a shelter and train them to basically do this pattern where, say you had three or four sounds that you wanted your dog to alert you to. They just teach them this back and forth pattern. Mm -hmm. So if someone's knocking on the door, the dog will run to the door and run back to you until you're like, what do you want? And go Mm -hmm. to the door. My Those were the coolest that. dogs to work with. They were they were fun. My dog does. Yeah, that. I was going to say most people's well, was, dogs do that pretty it well. Was, yeah. Well, and it was funny. And like most of our most of our service dogs weren't up to that task. Really? Because by the time I oh, got yeah. involved in the program, yeah. No. Well, they were breeding dogs specifically for lower drive, easier to handle in public, mm-hmm. especially with a lot of the clients we had that were dealing with physical disabilities. You mm-hmm. didn't. You couldn't have that. Like you couldn't. So yeah, they had that. We worked with kids with various disabilities, whether they were on the spectrum or whatnot. And then when I left, they were starting to do like therapy dogs, basically. So they were placing dogs in classrooms with teachers. So the teacher could use the dog as a tool in the classroom. They started placing dogs in courthouses also which was interesting Mm. and a few various other applications. So lots of stuff, no guide dogs, no scent detection, anything. So there were no like seizure alert dogs or anything like that. Uh, There's actually nothing like that in my area, no seizure alert dogs or anything. Yeah. So I worked there for a while. They have like a two year training program. So it was a, it was a pretty great start to the dog world because I was able to get a lot of information and a a pretty nice little package over those two years. And I was able to work with various trainers that worked at the organization. And I was able to practice on dogs that weren't very dangerous. Mm -hmm. So they were pretty easy, you know, mostly labs and some goldens. And we, we tried to use greyhounds for a while that didn't work out so well, but I also got to go into shelters and temperament test dogs. That was part of the training program is I needed to 
find a dog in a shelter and train it up through the through the program and then place it with a client. Cool. Which was eye opening because I think I went through like 10 dogs before I I got one through Mm -hmm. because they'd always be failed for various behavioral problems. That's kind of the issue. Like so many people, we we hear that so often in dog world, like, oh, I can't get a dog from shelter for that. And it's like, yeah, you can try. And sometimes it works, but almost every dog that's in the shelter has some kind of booby trap, right? Like there's something going, there's a reason he's in there. And sometimes the reason is he had asshole owners, but- other times there's a problem that is simmering away under there and you might get six weeks into a training program before that rears its head. And then you're like, oh, wow, that's a genetic issue that I'm not changing. And now you're no longer suitable for this purpose. I know a lot of people in the detection world have that, especially like here in Australia, there's been some really like amazing success cases of dogs that come out of rescue. And so it kind of sets the tone for, well, they'll all work out like that, right? And it's like, no, those are the exception. They're not the rule. And, you know, what I found in the the service dog world here is the larger the program, the less risk they're willing to take, Mm -hmm. right? Especially if you have a program that has a breeding program that they've been using for a long time. Because I did a little bit of just kind of training service dogs privately once I left the organization. And you were just so much more comfortable taking risks with people when the owner was the one involved in training because mm-hmm. you you were seeing right there what they could and couldn't handle versus with the program dogs. You didn't know the owner until it was too late. Really. Right. Like, I mean, they, they did a good job interviewing them and whatnot, but you don't really see what's going to happen until the client's there for training. So yeah, the big organizations, they take a lot less risks. So they're, they're a lot less willing to use shelter dogs. And I actually don't know of many programs that many like big organizations that use shelter dogs, at least in the, in the U S I know the program I came from still does a little bit. And um, there's another program on Long Island that's looking to start using shelter dogs, but they've always used like purebred labs and shepherds and goldens and all that. So how did it work? I know this is a little bit um, off topic of what we were going to discuss, but how's it work that hmm. someone would come in and say, hey, I want a service dog. And then you go, okay, we will begin preparing one for you. Or did you have the dogs kind of on the shelf and someone comes in and says, hey, I'm looking for a service dog. And you go, oh, that's Charlie. Here he is. Yeah. So we would have both. So we'd have a waiting list of clients that it was someone's job to interview them, figure out if they were a right fit for the dogs we offered, or if they were even a right fit for a service dog in general. Mm -hmm. A lot of that job was actually talking people out of service dogs Mm -hmm. because it's a lot of work. Like people think, oh, I just get this this tool and I start using it. But it, it was a lot of work. And that was actually part of whenever I had a new client and that was part of our orientation is like, you might find that this is more work than you were prepared for. And if you decide to leave here without the dog, that's okay, because mm-hmm. we'd rather you do that than so, the dog and be totally overwhelmed. Let's elaborate on that, Jen, because there's a lot of people out there who don't understand like the matching and the pairing of getting an assistance dog or a service dog or anything like that. Like they just basically think in their head and rightfully so because they have no experience in it, but they believe that it's just like a bolt-on application where you just turn up at a facility, get the dog, take it home, and automatically the dog just does its job for you. So can you just elaborate on that for us a little bit so people can get a grasp of it? Yeah, to the best I can. I mean, I've, I've been out of the service dog world for probably six or seven years now. It's It's been a while, especially it's especially been a while since I was involved in the matching process. So when I left my job there, I still did a little contract work for them, just training the dogs. Actually, I was running some prison programs for them, but I was pretty far removed from the client stuff. Um, but a lot of it is first making sure that you're with the right program or private trainer if you're going to go private trainer. 
because you'll find again larger organizations they usually have like some cookie cutter types of dogs that they offer right like uh, your standard dog for someone who's got a physical disability and needs a, a fetch and a tugging doors open and turning light switches on and off right mm. so you have to find that first and then once you find again a organization or private trainer that can help you with what you specifically need, we need to make sure that you'll actually benefit from a dog, right? So there's all sorts of things that would go into the matching process, not just like what the client needed, but on the dog end, like what, what was the dog? What were the dog's strengths and weaknesses? Cause I had dogs that I would fly across the country. So I needed a, maybe a more robust, stable dog. If I was going to fly him out to Arizona, then I would a dog I was going to, you know, put two towns away from me and could Mm -hmm. check in on more. So yeah, there's, there's a lot and it's, it's been quite some time since I was involved in that matching process. I begged a lady once not to get a dog. She called me and said that they'd organized to buy this puppy and that they'd heard from someone else that I'd helped train the assistance dog of, and they were getting a 16-week-old Cavoodle. It was already desexed. She had a severely autistic son, and it was going to be his assistance dog. And I was like, lady, please don't buy that dog. And, oh, we've already put a deposit down. I said, just blow the deposit. See if you can get it back, but just walk away from that deposit. I promise you that the training that is going to cost you is going to be more than that deposit loss in what you're going to have to spend. And then she told me that they were already bonded to the dog, despite never having seen it. They had been sent one photo of the dog and they were like, no, no, we really want to get him. And I begged, I said, please don't get that dog. It's only going to make your life harder. This is not actually going to solve any of the problems you want it to solve. And she's like, yeah, but you'll be able to do that. And I was like, no, I'm not. Like, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm not the person. I will not be helping you train that dog. Do not get it. We can start fresh. I won't even charge you. We can go back to, I will find you the dog that we will train for this purpose and like the first 1500 she'd put a $1,500 deposit. I said, the first $1,500 of my bill, I won't charge you. Like, let's just leave it there. She, she put goes, $1,500, no, $1,500 she, deposit on the dog, right? That was going to be- On the puppy? On the puppy. That was going to be three grand. I begged her. I said, please, please, please don't get the dog. She said, we're getting the dog. I said, do not call me again. We're done. Because if that's the first piece of advice you won't follow, there's zero chance you're going to be able to mm. follow through on training this dog. Like, if that's the, yeah. the first piece of advice I give you, you're like, no, fuck you. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I was like, we're And done. like determining if someone should even self-train or not can be a rude awakening for some people. They think that that's the cheaper way to go. Cause you no know, way. around here, at least a, a program dog can go for like 10 grand or more, which, you know, you can fundraise it and whatnot, but it's still, it, it seems really pricey. Yeah. Until you get into how hard it is to actually train the dog mm. yourself. So I've got like one or two privately trained service dogs out there that are working, but it was just is luck more than anything. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't like the training was good enough. Like the training is always the easy part, right? It's the, who is the dog genetically and what is the, how good of a trainer is the owner, mm. right? Cause if you're not like close to dog trainer status, which is kind of what I want to talk about tonight, you almost have to be a dog trainer to, to train your own service dog. Yeah, totally. Mm. So you got out of that and you started your own business. I did. I got out of it. I got, um, I got bored with it because it was, you know, doing the same thing over and over and over again, same sorts of dogs, same sorts of behaviors. You were always training and the culture there was not very welcome to any sort of growth. So they weren't big on 
you learning more or learning different ways or being questioned, especially being a young trainer, you know, there, I was by far the youngest trainer there. And a lot of the other trainers had been there for like decades. And I just found it to be pretty oppressive. And I met a trainer that did some contract work for the organization. And she had asked me if I wanted to teach some pet dog classes for her. And at the time I was, um, I was in college part-time and then working full-time. And I was like, and she lived like an hour away from me. I was like, eh, I'm not really interested, but I ended up reaching out to her and I was like, Hey, are you still, you still looking for someone? I want to give it a try. And, uh, she was like, yeah, of course. I'm always looking for trainers, always looking for new trainers. Come on down. I can, uh, I took one of her classes with, uh, my then six month old Shiva, who was terrified of the world. <laughs> try to bite everyone. And I ended up teaching classes for her. And I will never forget my first pet dog class with her. She's a great friend to this day. I, I'm in touch with her still. Uh, but she had set me up this class that she thought would be super easy. She does really small basic obedience classes. So like max of four people in a basic obedience class. And she had these three friends that wanted to take class together. So she was like, great, that's basically a full obedience class. This will be really fun. They're all friends. They all have easy dogs. She set me up and I walk in and she had two training rooms. So I was training in one room and she was training in the other. She's in the other room teaching a class. And these, these three ladies walk in with some sort of little poodle mix, a Rhodesian Ridgeback, and then some sort of little terrier mix. And the Rhodesian Ridgeback was just that's another whole story. He was just so soft. It was sad. Um, and the the woman, the you woman mean he couldn't little... hunt lions? <laughs> How dare you? How dare you imply that every Ridgeback can't hunt lions? <laughs> and it was my first experience with a Ridgeback, and they've just been like tainted in my mind ever since. Uh, and so the woman with the the poodle mix, she walks up to me and she's like. So I know we're supposed to pay in advance, but we really want to watch your class and see if we like you or not. And then we'll decide if we're going to pay you. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I was like, you know, I'm used to teaching inmates, like do what I say or else I'll, I have 10 guys waiting to take your place. Like, <laughs> and uh, I walk in, I walk into the other room and I, I asked my friend, I'm like, uh, is this okay? And she just laughs at me and she's like, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> and uh it ended up being all right it was it was a rude awakening for transitioning from what i thought i knew to what i had to do if i was going to make it outside the cushy lifestyle of the the service dog world so yeah that was pet dog stuff and i did it i did it and i had some really great classes down there i ended up teaching classes for her for about four or five years which was nice because i had you know i got into pet dog training and i was like shit i don't know anything like and I had been training for a, like I wasn't a new trainer in my mind I wasn't a new trainer but I just had been doing the same thing over and over again for so long and all of a sudden I'm just like dealing with all these different breeds and all these different backgrounds and owners that don't need to be as committed as the the people I had worked with before and I was lucky because I was able to take a lot of classes there with my dog and work pretty closely like she like under the trainer there and then eventually was able to just do a lot more on my own. So that was 2014 maybe uh, that I started working there and I, I left my service dog job and I just reached out to every dog training place in my area and I was like, hey, you need a trainer? You need a trainer? You need a trainer? And I ended up, I was working at like six different places at one point just teaching pet dog stuff. Some of them let me train however I wanted 
And some were very strict about what I taught. Uh, I did teach at an all positive place for a while. Actually, I think you, that agility place we went to, I taught, yeah, I taught classes there. I lasted 10 months and then ended up, we ended up parting ways, but, uh, how'd you, how'd you manage that? Like where you have the handcuffs put on you like that, you know, and, and, you know, did you encounter anything there that you thought, Oh, like I know how to do this better and you, you couldn't, what was that like? So it's funny you ask that, like a lot of owners were perfectly happy to just use lots of treats and mm-hmm. not get a lot of results. Mm-hmm. Like they got, you know, they got some results, but I had one client in particular and he ended up being the only, the only student in class one day. So it was just me and him. And he had like this, like Newfoundland, like Newfoundland mix or something like that. And you could tell he was like an old school guy. Like he had had dogs a long time and he'd mentioned prong collars to me before. And I ended up like, it was his frustration in the curriculum that made me throw in the towel. I was like, you know, it's, it's cause I'll, I'll still take clients. Like if all you want to do is use food and it's safe, like I'm not dealing with anything serious and you're not comfortable correcting your dog and you understand how that's going to affect your results. Fine. But it was when I, when I was limited and the owner was like, please give me more mm. <laughs> that I was like, ah, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. So that was, you know, I'm, I'm working on something at the moment, sort of like a content thing that I'm trying to formulate exactly how I'm going to explain it. But I feel like at both sides of that sort of behavior modification, especially pet dog stuff is you get people who are, you know, positive only or force free or R plus, whatever they, you know, whatever label. And they are really successful in behavior modification, but over this long timeline, right. And then a lot of sort of balance trainers or, or others further to the right of that spectrum might look at that and go, Oh, that's ridiculous. But if the owner's happy to do that, like why not? So long yeah. as that the dog is able to, you know, it comes sort of comes down to that Lima basis of like the decision on what is least invasive, like it's a shitty life for a long time better than a, you know, like a shitty life for a short time. But if the dog's life is good and they're managing an issue and it goes for a long time, like good for you. But it's then when yeah. you go like, oh no, but these are people who want this fixed in three weeks. And so I'm using, going to use a bit more pressure. But then I think because we're dog trainers, it's such a referral based job that if you are a person that has fixes a reactive dog over six months for someone, well, they tell their friends. And if their friend goes, you're a fucking idiot, why would you spend six months doing that? Well, they're not going to come to you as a client. So we kind of end up in these echo chambers of like people who say, no, you can spend six months fixing an issue with a dog using nothing but positive reinforcement. That's true for them because they attract people who are willing to do that. And then that's just it. Yeah. yeah. And, and that then, was totally the culture there. And if you think about agility, like agility training, that's agility training. Like it takes a long time. So, but that was the whole culture that people were perfectly happy to take their time and use lots of reinforcement and do all the, you know, using a harness to manage or using lots of space to manage. And it was also a pretty rural environment. Like I've gone down to New York city to learn from trainers down there and like, I would have never even attempted all positive training in New York city. Cause you just can't like, mm. you can't, you can't use that distance and use all those tools that'll help you be successful in the long run. When I was a young guy and I was doing a lot of pet dog training, like a lot of it, I was really struggling with the concept and we didn't really have too much of the intervention of positive only then like it was coming in, but it wasn't really deep rooted like it is now. And the one thing that I did struggle with is I knew what needed to be done. 
But trying to convince the owner of that was a very difficult situation. I found that very conflicting when I'd go into people's homes. They'd show me the dog. I'd sit down with them and we'd conduct a bit of an interview first. So we'd sit down. I'd say to them, okay, what's happening? What's the problem? They'd explain it to me. I'd go out in the backyard, have a look at the dog or go for a walk on the street with them and they'd show me exactly what was happening. And I would know exactly what needed to be done to fix that dog short term. But the problem was sometimes trying to explain that to the owner when that's their baby. What I wanted to do was what I wanted to do, not what they wanted me to do. And I had to find and struggle with the concept of being the trainer that was willing to compromise a little bit in order to get the jobs. And I found that really, that really tore at my soul a little bit. So I found for me the one thing that really gave me the peace I needed and the longevity to stay in the industry was to transfer into board and train because that way I could conduct what I needed to to conduct. I could spend time conditioning the dog in the correct behavior and transform the behavior and then give it back to the handler without them having to be present and interfere with everything that I was doing all the time. I mean, some people say to me, well, you know, that's not very good customer service. But for me, it was because I was giving them what they ultimately wanted, but weren't prepared to do. Once I started doing that, I found that that was my niche. I was able to succeed quite liberally when when we were doing that type of training, because the conflict is always there when the owner is interjecting all the time and they're saying, oh, but I don't really want to do that. And they're conflicted themselves and they're, they're stuck in their own paradigm of thinking, oh, I know I need it, but I'm not prepared to do it. And as pet dog trainers, that's something that we really find troubling in our soul because some people are prepared to say, okay, I'll do what you want. I'm willing to turn over to that success pathway of I'll do what you want in order to keep the business flowing. And some people might listen to that and say, oh, Glenn, that's not fair. You know, like I'm trying to be a good brand ambassador for dog training and I'm trying to do the right thing. Fair enough. Whatever floats your boat. It just didn't sit well for me. And it really tugged at my conscience because I kept thinking to myself, all I'm doing is placating people's problems. Like I'm just nodding my head saying, yeah, that'll work. And inside myself, I'm going, no, it won't. It's not going to work. Or the length of time that I'm going to have to spend with you, like the lesson planning and the time and the money you're going to invest in it is just going to, it's going to bankrupt you. You know, like it literally is just going to drain money out of your coffers. And just to extend this a little further, I know some people are happy to do this. Some people are just happy to keep paying you because sometimes they just want a friend to speak to rather than a dog trainer. They just want someone to turn up and go for a walk with them and their dog and tell nice stories to and and buy an hour of your time. And I've accepted that people like to do that and I'm okay with that as long as we kind of have the talk where I say, you know, we're not really training dogs, are we? And they go, yeah, but it's okay. And if they're okay with it, I'm okay with it. As long as yeah. as long as long I don't lead them up the path and lie to them about what's happening, then it sits better with me. Yeah, I think in the pet dog world, especially, you really got to find what makes you happy because that's kind of it's kind of why I wanted to come on tonight because I know I see a lot of pet dog trainers burn out because they just get sick they get sick of their clients like mm-hmm. I see them like hating their clients and I'll tell you what like I have a lot of clients that have just turned into friends because they're just great people didn't start like that but that's for me my ideal client is someone who wants to work with me for a long time like they've got a lot of goals whether it's simple goals, but their dog has a lot of problems, like a lot of behavior problems or really advanced goals. And their dog is just kind of an easy dog. They just want 
really high level stuff. But I, I really like working with those people who want to invest in working for a long time with me. But that's not the average client I find, yeah. you know, like that's not, especially since so like wrapping up my, my bio, right? So I had my own business. I was teaching group classes at six different places. My head was spinning because I was like, where am I? I have to teach like this. And then I was slowly building my private in-home training business on the side. And what was really nice is a lot of places I was working at, they didn't offer private in-home training. So they would just give me clients and not expect anything in return. And then eventually I got to the point where I was, that's pretty much all I was doing. It was private in-home and I was teaching group classes once a week. And then I bought this new business, which is all pet dog training and all group classes. And once again, watching the type of client I deal with on a day-to-day change. And I really wanted to talk about ways that pet dog trainers can work with their clients so that they're not just finding that they're going home at the end of the day and, and just trash talking them. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I hate it when I see online, like people screenshotting, Oh, look at, look at what my, my client texts me, or I can't believe these people don't know this. So like, how do you, how do you do that? And, you know, Glenn, for you, you said it was board and train, right. Board and train. Mm -hmm. It worked for you. Yeah. I hate board and train. I hate it. I did it because it's fun. Sometimes I would like, I would like handpick dogs that I wanted to work with, but um, I'm officially not doing any more board and train, especially now that I have an infant in the house. I just didn't like it. I found that for me, which is different than you, board and train clients were some of my worst clients. I got the least amount of FaceTime with them and I hated it so much that I would charge a lot for it to feel like it was worth my time. And it just made people want it more because <laughs> I, I would only take, I'd only take one dog at a time. So it's like, mm. I really got to make this worth my time, but I just wasn't seeing the clients enough. And for me, I, I found out that my success is when I have a lot of FaceTime with the clients where I have a lot of interaction with them. So I can do a lot of coaching and, and kind of getting them on the right path and keeping them there. So I wanted to share like a few things that I've found that that helped me stay sane and keep in mind that I'm now what like six or seven years into business. Cause so I was talking to a friend of mine about this because I like to pick and choose what private clients I work with. And she said, Oh, it's a very privileged thing to be able to say to to pick and choose, you know, to turn down money. Yes, it is, because I worked with everyone I possibly could for years, right? So you have to make money, you have to pay the bills. But you also have to figure out like, what is it that's going to let you go home at night and enjoy not just working with the dogs, but working with the people. I've kind of done like a full 180 on how I feel about working with people. When I first started at the service dog world, my job before that was a record. I was in a record store. So I was just some teenage punk kid working in a record store. No wonder you're so everyone. bohemian. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just like, and that was the scene is like, I had all this attitude because everyone I worked with had attitude and people suck and you know, all that. And I went into the service dog world like that. And, you know, I wanted to get into working with animals because I wanted to work with animals instead of with people. And as we all know, that's just not, even if you're in a kettle, you're working with people to some extent, right? So as I started to work with people more, I realized that there were, there were things I needed to put in place to make sure I was working with the right people because you, you're going to take on the attitude of the people around you. And what I needed to get out of the service dog world, because that, that culture was just, 
where I was, I'm not saying the whole entire service dog world. I'm just saying the specific organization where I was, they just weren't promoting things that I wanted to promote within myself. And I needed to connect with my clients in a way that was going to make me say, okay, I want to see you again next week. Mm -hmm. Right. And I've, I've got my own things that I like to do. And I'm, I'm curious to see what you guys do, but I don't even know how often you're working with pet dog clients now compared to other trainers or, or what your, your typical client is. But there were a few things I found that works for me to keep me sane and keep me loving my clients. And one of the biggest ones is trying to learn a new skill every so often, like a, a physical task of some sort. Agility was a big one for me because it was eye-opening to be in an agility class with an instructor and a dog who knew nothing and trying to run a course as the instructor is shouting instructions at you. And you're just like totally flustered and your, your brain says move one way, but your body's moving another way. And I realized that's probably how a lot of my clients feel when I'm first teaching them how to load a clicker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it seems easy to me, but it's, it's important to remind ourselves that it takes time. Like you have to be patient with people. Even if you, even if this is the 2000th, 2000th client that you've trained to do this, like you have to be patient with them because it's their first time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you can't be patient with them, you should probably be going about things differently, whether it's doing it yourself or finding different clients to work with that maybe are a little bit more advanced. And it's the same with answering the same questions over and over again. People get really sick of that, you know, like, how do I stop my puppy from biting? We get that question like 20 times a day. I just have free content. I send them yeah. I'm like here, here's a whole write up. <laughs> like, here you go. Right. I have all sorts of documents that are just canned responses of the same 10 questions I get every day. So I can just send them out and I'm not feeling like, Oh, I have to answer this again. And I just answered it. I also have videos to go along with it. Like they're unlisted. So it's not like anyone can just go look them up, but I, I send them off to my clients. And I also, like I said, I'm really picky about the private clients I take now. Not that I could always be. I see a lot of people have like a really lengthy form that they have clients fill out ask a lot of detailed questions and whatnot. And I do, I work with, I work with aggressive dogs and I also work with average pet dogs. I don't have a super lengthy form. I just have like, give me your basic details. And then I have one box where I'm like, Hey, describe in as much detail as possible what you want or what you're looking to gain. And when people only write in like two words, I'm like, <laughs> Not, not a good fit, <laughs> not a good fit. Right. But I don't want to, I don't want to lead them. Right. I want to see who they are when they're just kind of like reaching out. And it's those folks that send me paragraphs. Like I have a client who, um, she started with me virtually and not only did she send me paragraphs, but I always ask people to send me video and no one ever does. This woman sent me like 10 videos of her dog. And I was like, yeah, you're the client I want to work with. It's just pet dog, nothing, nothing serious, but that's the sort of stuff that keeps me going when people are that invested in their dogs. Mm, yeah. yeah. Just taking a little step back, talking about when you see trainers on Facebook, like screenshot emails they get from potential clients and posting it, it always makes me feel kind of sick when you see that. And you can tell like that is you're at burnout point. That's a, that's yeah, a, that's people. a, that's a warning sign. And, mm. and a few people who are good friends that I've seen do that. I always message them like, Hey, like that is out of character. Like some people that's totally in character because they're fucking assholes. Right. But when someone does that out of character, I'm usually like, Hey, 
that is uncool thing to do and you're not the kind of person that would do that. That is the first sign that you are burning out. And this is such a high burnout industry. People come and go so fast, especially in pet dog training. Because there's so many people that are non, like full-time professionals, you know, they keep their their real job and they do this sort of as a hobby on the side and they're the ones that come and go fast. And the second you see them posting that shit, you're like, oh yeah, this is the decline. And, and a few people I've spoken to about that, like it kind of grinds me specifically because you forget how many tens of thousands of dogs are just locked outside and never interacted with because rather than try and fix the problem, people are just like, ah, oh, fuck it, ignore that problem, right? That dog's a, you know, like, fuck him. And so- no matter how badly people word it and no matter how ridiculous their expectations may seem to you, the fact that they sat down in front of a computer and are beginning the process is a really good step. It's a step that loads and loads and loads of people never take. Mm. And and I think that we forget that as trainers and especially when someone just uses language poorly, like language they're not educated on or has like what we would describe as ridiculous expectations on something that they're completely uneducated on. So it's kind of like, it's like when I turned up to my kettlebell coach and was like, Hey, I'm going to do sinister. And then he goes, you know, there's only 20 people on the planet that have done that. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm going to be the 21st. Like <laughs> instead of it being like you fucking moron and screenshotting that and posting it to everyone, he educates me on the expectations of my ability to do that, right? And goes, no, you're fat. You're not going to be able to do that, right? Your, your body's yeah. broken. Like that's not going to happen. And I think as trainers, we we can sometimes just be like, oh, look at this guy, fuck him. You knock the winds out of Kind of the sale. culture. It's like the culture of social media right now to kind of bash yeah. the average pet dog owner. Like, especially if the average pet dog owner doesn't want to give their dog the life that a dog trainer would. Yeah. Like I see that a lot where you're like, oh, why aren't you doing, why aren't you training for 20 minutes a day and then playing for another 40 minutes a day and then doing another training session for 20 minutes a day? I'm like, fuck that. I don't even have time for that. Yeah. Like, and and especially when people send stuff that they're proud of and people cut them to pieces. So I had a, a life lesson on that a few days ago or a couple of weeks ago. So Rip got this prank kit for Christmas, right? So it's got like a fake shit in it and, <laughs> um, you know, a couple of other prank stuff. things, right? Yeah, fun kid stuff. So one of them is the one that everybody knows is that gum that flicks you on the finger when you pull it out of the pack, right? And it's like, it doesn't even work anymore because they don't make it. Like, you, you can't even get that kind of gum anymore, yep. right? So he comes up to me and he's like, He's got the gum and he goes, hey, would you like some gum? And it's like basically trying to force me to take this gum. And so I'm like, yeah, I'll play along. Knowing I'm going to get smacked on the finger by this thing because I'm like, I bought you this fucking thing. <laughs> like, like I, know, I know what's going to yeah. happen here. So I pull it out and it snaps me and he's like hysterical laughing at me. I got you. You didn't know that was coming. I got you. And I was like, he was so shit at this prank. It was fucking terrible. Like his delivery, his setup. His delivery, his execution, his after effects. It was total dog shit. It was mm. terrible. But it was his first time doing a prank. And he's and so, five. Yeah, and he's five. But, uh, so I was like, oh, you got me, right? And I had to play along. I was like, I had no idea that was coming. And I remember thinking at the time, this is only a few weeks ago, and it's been sort of playing on my mind, right? Because I, I could have been like, hey, that was shit. But then afterwards, I was like, you know what you should do is like, you should have a piece of gum prior to just forcibly taking, making me take some, right? Like set it up a little bit better. And I was like, that's all he can handle at the moment. Like, he don't, I don't need to go through the, like yeah. the expression on your face and all these sorts of things. I was like, you should obviously take some gum 
And then like absently sort of, oh, do you want some? Like you almost don't want me to take some. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Like, yeah, that's what I'll do next time, right? So it's got nothing to do with dog training. But then I was thinking about like how bad his delivery of this prank was. And I went and I sat down and I thought, oh, fuck. Like how many times have I sent people dog training videos and they've been like, hey, that was really good, little five-year-old doing terrible pranks. And so, like, I immediately get into Messenger and I go back and I look at videos I sent Bart five years ago, right? Hey, Bart Bellin, world's best dog trainer, look at me doing this. And I, all I get back from him is, like, well done and a thumbs up. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck, I'm the, I'm the bad prank deliverer. But instead but of – but instead of him downloading that and forwarding it and putting it on Facebook and go, look, this fucking idiot thinks this is dog training, right? Like he instead was like, yeah, that's good. Keep he, it he up. He was placating his five-year-old Pat. Yeah, and just sort mm. of like, hey, here's, here's like a tiny little bit of a – and when I watch those videos, I'm like, oh, my fucking God. Like now I'm like, I cannot <laughs> believe I sent that to Bob Ellen. But then like all he gave me was one little bit. Just fix this. That's really good, but just fix this little bit. The exact same way I said to him with the gum, like mm. just the way you set it up, just change that for next time and then we'll build on all those kinds of things. Well, I see that template get picked up and I see a lot of trainers that are like, oh, that's fucking terrible. And the kid never tries the prank again. He goes, well, I guess I'm bad at pranks, right? And the, the person goes, well, I guess I'm never going to fix this fucking dog, right? And out, or, outside you go and you get locked outside in a kennel and never mm, worked again. The amount of people on yeah. the Balance Symposium that have messaged me over the years over that exact same thing, like when the Balance Symposium was in full swing and we were chatting back and forth on there, there were several trainers who were really – critical of their work or what they were saying like it was their first post like they literally came out of the box and i think stian berg posted something in the canine paradigm the other day where it's got this little blob of jelly sitting inside a square box and it comes out of the box saying oh i'm gonna suggest about harnesses to help people you know mm. with my thoughts and then someone goes you're cruel to dog and punches it and it goes back in the box yeah. and it's double layered and it says never again i was sad when i saw that because i thought the amount of people that have PM'd me and said, hey, Glenn, thanks for the forum. I really appreciate the work that you guys all put into it, but I'm never going to say anything again because, you know, I just got severely bashed on it. And I said, why? What happened? Like, didn't see the post, but they deleted everything. They were so scared and intimidated by it. And I thought that is absolutely fucking horrible. And it's completely against the ethos of what we're trying to do. And I'm not saying that I haven't been party to that sort of thing before because there's probably been a time where I've jumped on the wagon with something like I've got tired and snarky and I've thought, yeah, fuck that guy. And I've thought, you know, let's rip that person a new asshole. But I think I'm a, a much better person than getting involved in that now. You know, you may relapse and you may think, oh, what do they say? Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But it still is against the ethos. Like Pat and I moderate TCP quite heavily now and we've got a group of girls that help us out that, you know, they they see things and bring things to our attention fast and say, is this the the quality or the quantity of posts that we want to have on the canine paradigm? We just said, nah, we don't want that. That's not what we want to represent. So thinking about the same thing that you were talking about with Rip, which was hilarious, by the way, <laughs> considering he's five and he's never pulled that prank before and you're going, his delivery was shit and he's... <laughs> But that's like I'm not going to say that to him. I know. I, say that to, like, I know. But what's his experience beforehand? Exactly. But yeah. that's that's what we face. Is and he also just... he had to go through that also, yes, right? Exactly. Like if you had if you had gone in and said no 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 do it this way. Like I I feel like I was that trainer for my clients for a long time. Is they're like I'm going to explain this thing, and I'm like no 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 I'm going to explain to you what your problem is, yeah. right? Like that that doesn't get us anywhere. But also 
like they need to be heard. They need to tell their story, even if we know exactly where the story's going. And like, as far as giving people advice online or otherwise, I've, um, I've learned to just not like, not that I ever, not that I'm that active in commenting and whatnot, but even in person, like probably the best advice I got from my, my first mentor when I was back training service dogs was to always make a, when, if you're going to give criticism, make it a sandwich. Mm, So you want to compliment, criticize, Mm -hmm. compliment. And that works wonders with my, with my pet dog clients. But I also like, I'm much more careful now about pointing out things that I think they should change unless I think they're dangerous or they're constantly complaining about them. Mm -hmm. Because I would like, especially when like I was first into first getting into it, I would go to my parents' house and I'd look at their dogs and I'd just be like, oh, you should do this and you should do that and you should do this. And my mom would just make fun of me. (laughs) I was like, and then I realized, I was like, oh, you don't care. Yeah. You don't care that he does that. It's not a problem for you. Yeah. There's a really good book. It's an old book, but it's a good book that I think everybody should probably glance through it if they're into customer service and sales. And that's How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. They really should put it. I mean, it's probably superseded and there's probably other books that say it better, but I remember reading it and I flicked through it again recently because we run six major boarding kennels in New South Wales. And I've got a team of people that work for me who sometimes we need a brush up on how we're dealing with customers and complaints and so forth. So I've literally said to all my managers, buy this book. You need to buy it and you need to read it or we'll buy it for you as long as you read it and you apply the principles within because it does talk about, you know, like you need to be invested in your client. You need to share the journey with them and you need to be more of an avid listener in what they've got to say. Otherwise, don't be in business. Like go and do something else where you don't have to deal with people. Yeah, you got to wonder how many people in the dog training world have actually been taught how to teach people, like how to conduct a class or develop a Mm. curriculum or set measurable goals for a class or a private lesson or whatever. Like I'd guess not many. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I don't like group classes, not opposed to them, but I don't do them is because just like every dog requires a different approach, I think every person requires a different approach. And Mm -hmm. I find that when you do classes, like it's fine as an aggregate and everybody will move forward a little bit. But when someone's got a real issue, they kind of need a tailored approach. And you, like, I've never been able to do that as well as I would like to in a group setting. Whereas, you know, like with some people that like some of the clients I have, especially now, since most of my clients are already dog trainers, they just want the facts. Boom, boom, boom. Like give it to me and don't sugarcoat it. I just want to know this information. Sweet. Cool. Yeah. But then when I do take on like some pet dog people, one of my sort of happiest moments was I saw in a local dog forum, a guy not complaining about me. Someone was asking for referrals and someone had said, you know, me. And this guy wrote, oh, yeah, I use Pat and didn't really learn anything. But then I looked at, you know, he talked about his dog And I was like, it made me actually really happy because this guy was really pig headed kind of dude. And I had had to sort of drop everything in a way where he thought that he was coming up with it. Right. And the dog had become the dog that he wanted to. And he had thought that like he had just wasted his money on me, but he had ended up where I had very gently steered him towards. And you just couldn't do that with some people uh, like, no, no, I want the information like course, correct, push the ship. Whereas other people, you got to like slowly nudge. Right. And, and, having him not even realize that the issues with his dog that were fixed were because of the information I'd give him actually made me very happy. I mean, it didn't help my referral process, but fuck him. <laughs> but um, but it everybody 
just like dogs requires a different approach and there's the science around it is the same right like there's it's not like you need to become magic and read people's minds but you have to sort of use the right operant process and you got to find out what is the motivator of this person just like you got to find out what's the motivator of the dog mm. and use them put the person in the correct drive to understand what is going on here and that is like when you go into someone's home and the dog's embarrassing and they're, like they're embarrassed by the dog you got to put them at comfort and be mm. like hey this is this is nothing to me like don't worry this is you're the fifth you're the fifth person whose dog's bit me today M- meanwhile in your mind you're like this motherfucking dog just bit me. <laughs> i can't believe this happened but you got to put them at ease because if they're so embarrassed because the dog just did something they're not going to tell you about the other stuff that the dog did that they also need to have addressed because they're so embarrassed by that one incident that just happened then whereas other people when their dog when they you know are training towards a particular goal I'll be super nitpicky on them and be like, hey, your dog didn't sit as fast as we, as you have paid me to coach you into getting him to sit that fast, right? So yeah. horses for courses and finding the right way to talk to the person is as or more important than communicating with the dog correctly. Yeah, and it's it can definitely be more challenging in group class. It really, this is where your process, your registration process really matters, right? Because if you're getting the wrong people into privates or groups, then you're going to have an unhappy client before you even really get started. Um, the nice thing about group, I think, I mean, as I said, I'm like drowning in, in new dogs and new clients and whatnot, and I'm booked out pretty far. And with group class, I can help a lot more people a lot sooner. But also with the group class, there tends to be this like social aspect to it. And like in our group classes, it's, mm. it's pretty much all friendly dogs. Like if there's going to be any aggressive dogs, they have to do a, a fair amount of private training before they're approved for group class. But it is really cool to see people connect with each other. And, and I think especially coming off of 2020, I think I'm craving that for sure. Like mm-hmm. I've been kind of holed up for almost a year in my house, most of which was pregnant and like just seeing my clients become friends with each other and like their dogs get along. So now they have playmates and they don't have to go to the dog park or whatever. It is really cool to watch that, but it's also really cool to have a bunch of people who are all struggling with the same thing because that can be motivating. Like when I say, hey, who's, whose puppy won't stop biting them and everyone raises their hand, they look around, they're like, ah, mm-hmm. it's not me. It's not just me, right? Like that could be really, really um, good for their overall morale. And I also, I have a lot of like, again, the culture here is so different than even when I saw you, when I saw you guys last, I have a lot of people who they want to get, they need privates, but they want to get to group class as quick as possible because they want to be around other dogs and be around other people and have that experience with their dog. But they know like I can be in a room full of people and dogs and my dog's going to pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. And there's a the social aspect as well on the dog side. I mean, there's people who just avidly don't like group classes. Like I speak to a lot of people who just say, look, I don't like them. It's not the culture that I'm trying to develop or the, the business style like Pat doesn't really like group classes, but I see benefit in them for a lot of people because their dogs just don't get adequate social exposure or they don't develop a habitual program out on the field with other dogs around them, which they absolutely need. So for me, I can see a strong benefit from it. And also we do a very small amount of group classes at Dural where I live and at, at the work premises here. And we have a reactive dog class that my head trainer, Kana, asked me, she said, look, we've got a lot of reactive dogs. Can we do a reactive dog class? I said, absolutely, sure. I think it's beneficial. And that way also we can cherry pick whether or not 
certain owners need to come into private tuition with them. Like we need to say, look, you need some extra curriculum. I think you need to step outside the class, work with me a little bit. And they're fine with that. They understand, like they understand they're committed to the program. They wanted the group, like they sort of approached our trainers and said, you know, this would be great if we could do this. We said, yes, we think it's a safer environment that we can set it up specifically for the dogs. And we're not taking dogs in there that are extreme and, you know, like continual problems. We're taking dogs in there that just have an edge to them that will benefit from an environment where it's structured and set up for them, which fundamentally, you know, it was something that I was very transformative in the Rottweiler Club when I used to run that in Victoria was people would say to me, oh, we can't have problem Rottweilers down here. And I said, this has got to be sanctuary for those dogs to come to because everybody else is kicking them out. Then we're creating a social problem in society where these dogs have nowhere to go. They have no sanctuary. They have nobody that will help them and they will either hide the dog or the dog will bite someone and then it brings it back on the whole breed. Like then it starts to focus people on the breed, that there is a problem with the breed. And I said, therefore, we're being part of the problem. We need to be part of the solution. So for me, I do see a benefit in group classes as long as the people conducting the group classes are well-trained, they have an education, they know when to say when, and they also know like if they've got those problem people in the class that they do have the confidence and the ability to pull them aside and say you're not going to benefit from group class anymore you will benefit from doing a structured private session because you really need tutelage on how to become a better handler and how to manage your dog better i've never been to a reactive dog class i've never seen one or participated in one or taught one how are how are they structured at your place the way we're structuring it is we're giving the owners and the dogs jobs to do. So it's more about teaching the dog to focus back on the handler and back on the activity rather than the dogs around it. In a kind of way, it's like a giant box, okay, where we're teaching the dog that don't focus externally, focus internally, but don't ignore that there's other dogs around you. Be present that there's other dogs. And we're even telling people, listen to the box episode. You know, like you need to do as many of these sort of activities with your dogs that your dogs are invested in more of sort of like a being in a meditative state or being an engaged state where that's where the owners have fundamentally struggled with the programs that they're trying to implement is they don't understand how to keep their dogs engaged. Therefore, their dogs are looking externally all the time. I think one of the suggestions I give people, and it's certainly with all the trainers I'm teaching in the NDTF, is that idle hands become the devil's tools. And the more that you disengage with your dog or allow the dog to become disengaged, the dog is looking for external stimuli to occupy itself. And therefore, the dog is actually engaged in what's going on publicly rather than with you. So in our classes, what we're trying to do and what Kana and Kristen are, who are my trainers, what they're doing when they're out on the field is they're teaching owners how to re-engage and reenact with their dogs. So their dogs are finding that I can do this and I can be around other dogs and I don't have to behave the way I used to behave. So it's applying the fundamentals of good training desensitization, systematic desensitization and counter conditioning, like employing all of the techniques that you would, but also not allowing, like I said, not allowing the dogs to be in such close proximity with each other that we're causing explosions and problems with the dog. I remember somebody coming on the 
podcast at some stage and suggesting that the best thing really was to teach people how to be professional handlers, you know, like a, a notch before becoming a trainer. And that's something that we're also working with these people as well. We're saying to them at the start, you have a responsibility. The role now is, is you need to upskill yourself. You need to be much better than the average handler that's out there causing problems because at some stage, if you don't do this, you're going to expose yourself publicly as a problem person with a problem dog. And that's how society will judge you. And that's what we don't want to happen with for these people. I think you see, especially with the reactive dog stuff, a lot of the times the the treatment is that, you know, desensitized counter condition, mm. but literally any training will do that because it's just that the dogs had no training more often than not. That's what I see. So, so you see like the traditional approach, you know, say it's doorbell reactivity, dog goes crazy. And so people will try and decent, like doorbell goes off his food and blah, 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 all that. But like, you could have just taught the dog to get on and off the couch. You could have taught the dog to Mm. weave between your legs. It's anything Mm. that is engagement with the dog and the dog goes, Oh fuck, there's value in you. Like I I didn't realize that you could dispense treats. I didn't didn't realize that was a thing. I didn't realize that you were operant to my behavior. I didn't realize that me and you were working in unison. I thought that I was just my own, Mm. you know, I was my own thing doing my own, like following my own drives. And I didn't realize you had any input other than, like dropping a bowl of mush on the floor for me every day. Yeah, it's just not knowing. Yeah, as soon as a dog figures that out, a lot of the times, unless there really is an underlying issue, but that that early stage reactivity just kind of goes away. And and, and, and as trainers, we kind of go like, ah, we fixed it with counter conditioning. Well, well, maybe, but you probably just, the dog just, his life just got better and he thought, oh, well, like I have an interest. And that's the main goal really, isn't it? Is that you've transformed the life of the dog and the handler because active engagement isn't just a term that people need to do with the dogs. They need to be actively engaged as well. Yeah. In the presence of the the problem. Yeah. And that's a a big struggle. Some of my clients have, I've got a mix of clients. I've got a lot of clients that live in a city. So fairly populated, constantly seeing people and dogs and cars and all that stuff. And then I've got a lot of clients that live in the middle of nowhere. And like, those are the folks that like, they, they need some sort of group environment at some point, right? Mm -hmm. Because they just don't actually, I had two clients start at the same time, same program, same sort of dog, same sort of problems. One lived in the city and one lived in the middle of nowhere. The one in the city after a few weeks, maybe a month or two of training, not really an issue anymore. The one that lived in the middle of nowhere probably is still an issue because mm-hmm. she just, she never got to the point where she could go and, and practice those things. So the way I like to use group class for, for those clients is we do a, a series of privates first, just to make sure the, the owner's feeling good about it before transitioning them into a class. I guess when I thought of reactive dog class, I think of a big space, which I don't have, like like the, the space you came to two years ago, it was a decent space. It wasn't huge. My space is smaller now. Mm-hmm. So it's not like maybe I could have two dogs in there, maybe, but it's still not a lot of space. Uh, so yeah, I just, whenever I hear reactive dog, I just think of a bunch of dogs in the room. Just barking at each other. Close, too close to each other. Cause I've never, like if I could do it outside, sure. But not right now, it's like 10 degrees. And That's just an induced aggression. Well, hot, but we see that hot, there's yeah. plenty of, there's plenty of online trainers that show that, right? Like here's two reactive dogs. We're going to put them face to face and blow their heads off. And now just oh, slap a muzzle on them just to make sure. Yeah. Let them, let them fight it out. <laughs> let them fight it out for a few minutes and then go full steam on the e-collar. Both of them. Oh, look, they're both fucking don't do anything anymore. Mm. Like, oh, fixed. No. Ugh. 
Hey, you said something before, and I'm glad to hear it that you're killing it, right? Like you're busy, you're you're, you're booked out. How do you handle that then? Like, what's your process for when people get in contact with you and they want something you can't deliver? Yeah, I have two sort of funnels uh, based on what they're looking for. So I've got like my group class funnel and then my private training funnel. And group classes all register online, pay online. If you're not accepting credit cards and debit cards at this day and age, you should be make it easy for people to give you money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, so yeah, all the registrations online and I've actually got, I've got someone finishing up some behind the scenes stuff to help me plan for people who are trying to maybe sign up for a class that isn't appropriate for them, whether it's because of their dog's age or the problem they're dealing with. But we, when the group class registrations come in, we do screen them all. I'm looking for red flags because of any potential aggressive dogs or someone who maybe is expecting a little bit more from the group class than we can offer. I call them because what I don't want is someone's like, yeah, I want my dog to be off leash. Don't take a basic, I mean, maybe we'll get you to off leash eventually, but it's going to take much longer in group class than it is in private lessons. So I do look for that stuff because I don't want people to be disappointed. As far as private training goes, I have an application that I have people fill out on just right on my website. And from there, I keep an eye on it, read it when it comes in. And it's really a matter of if I want to take it on, and if it's something that, you know, right now I'm booking out with a month or so, if it's something that can't wait, I need to make sure I have someone I can send them to. Mm -hmm. Like so I've got, I've had a few aggression ones come in lately that I'm like, I can't see you tomorrow and you need a trainer tomorrow. Like this should not wait. So I have a small network of trainers that I that I like to reach out to and say, hey, this person can help with this. So at the facility here, it's me. And two other trainers, though, one is about to have a baby, so I'm going to lose her for a little bit. But when I'm looking at the private applications, especially, I'm trying to determine who would be the best fit for that person. Um, and it's usually dependent on their ultimate goals. Like, do they eventually want to get want to get into a group class? Like, maybe they've got a dog who they're just overwhelmed with, not aggressive, but they feel like a group class would be really overwhelming. I put them with my group class instructor. She does a few privates and then gets them into group class. Uh, a little bit of it is where they live too, because we're all kind of spread out. So some people are happy to wait. Some people need to see me immediately. But regardless of, if for privates at least, I'm always having a phone conversation with them before I meet them in person. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's usually a pretty lengthy phone conversation where we discuss, you know, what are your goals? What are you willing to do? That's where I kind of see... Do they have any tool biases that I need to know about? Can we work around them? Should we work around them? I always want to know if people are willing to use a crate or not, because that kind of lets me know what I'm getting into. And just kind of feeling the person out on the phone, especially with an aggressive like, aggressive dog. If I get a funny vibe on the phone, I'm like, ah, I can't help you. Or you shouldn't wait. You shouldn't wait. You should really get a trainer tomorrow. And I refer them out because uh, I'm taking less and less aggressive dogs these days because I've just being pregnant fucked my body up <laughs> so not as yeah. like not as like physically capable as I was a year ago yeah Jen one thing I did want to say about that with your pregnancy is that mm -hmm. I followed I mean I think we follow each other on Instagram and I was watching your mm -hmm. interactions with your dogs pre-pregnancy during pregnancy and post-pregnancy and one thing I wanted to say to you as a compliment was 
you never neglected your dogs during that time. Like I've seen a lot of people and, you know, there's reasons for it, I guess, but I've seen a lot of people who their dogs are their life. They hashtag everything their dog's in, have a baby, dogs disappear. Yeah, fuck that dog. Yeah, the dog like <laughs> is gone. Uh, I got to keep up appearances. Yeah. <laughs> the compliment I'm trying to pay you is that you truly exhibit yourself as a true dog person. Like you're invested hook, line and sinker in the program because your dogs never disappeared. As soon as you were really back on your feet after your pregnancy, your dogs were included in your life. You were doing baby social programs with Rue, is it? Yeah, Roo, the newest one. Rue and yeah. Boomba and, and Moon Pie and all the, all the <laughs> dogs that you've got there. So, you know, kudos to you because I could see that the dog still maintained the status of part of your family. And I think that's a lovely thing to see because Pat and I, a true dog people thick and thin. Anybody who's listened to the show knows I live at a boarding center where there's like minimum of 80 dogs here up to 250. And, you know, dogs are my life. Like I'm with and surrounded by dogs 24 hours a day, every single day I'm here. And it really pings me a little bit. Like I said, I know there are reasons for it because I have spoken to people and situations do change and they can become a problem for them, especially when they don't know how to handle and manage dogs and children and so forth. And sometimes I've spoken to those people and, you know, like after explaining the situation, I've agreed with them that they did do the right thing based on the temperament and when the living situation. But there's other people who just like ditch them, you know, like it's just, oh, yeah. I'm not a dog person anymore. I'm a parent. Okay, yeah. fair enough. That's your choice. I don't want to smash people for it. I guess I just thought it was really nice that you maintained it all the way. So those dogs never lost anything. Thanks. I really appreciate that. I never wanted kids. <laughs> like I was always, I was always oh, that. Oh God, we'll have to know. beep this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyone, anyone who's ever talked to me knows uh, I never wanted kids until like two years ago oh, okay. uh, when Andy and I, Andy and I started. Yeah, no, it wasn't an accident. <laughs> everything, everything was planned. <laughs> but, you know, for the longest time, my identity was like my dogs, right? Like making sure I get my dog's birthday gifts and Christmas stockings. And like, that was everything. Right. And I was afraid when I was pregnant, I was really worried about how my relationship would change with my dogs. Mm. Cause I knew life is just so different from what it was a year ago. And I, I really was worried that they would be like second rate to my baby and they are <laughs> like now they are like they are they're still getting all the same things from me but i i feel like i have a different perspective on my relationship with them now that i have a child like mm -hmm. they're they're still just as important to me but they're not equal with with my kid that's for sure and that's kind of like one of the things that i wasn't sure how to plan for it emotionally because they're so, like they're so they're so central to everything I do. And I thought I'd be really upset about the fact that they, that I now had this other thing competing with my attention for them. And it's really not been a problem. Like we still get out every day and train and play and they're, you know, ruse at my feet right now. They're still sleeping in my room. Not much has really changed. I just now like, you feel if I had to choose between my kid and my dog. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like I feel, I feel differently, but I still have all the, the same intentions and the same goals with them. And that's the thing, that right? Is sense. that the dogs don't pick uh -huh. up on that feeling that's internal. That's something you do. And I mean, your priorities are in check. I agree with you that your human child should take priority, but your dogs never missed out. Like you feel differently. Yeah, that's cool. But exactly. the dogs, the dogs still never lost. Like they never lost any traction in that relationship. Mm -hmm.
it can be difficult to explain yeah. to people, like certainly before I had a son and another on the way, like before that you think you understand what that would be like and you, you can go like, oh, I've got dogs and I love them very, very much. And then in my experience, you know, I was told prior to that, like people were like, you know, you don't understand. And I was like, how do I not understand? Like I understand love, <laughs> this, this feeling. Like love is love. It, it is immeasurable. It's like being pregnant. You are or you aren't. I love you or I don't, right? Like, and that's how I kind of felt. And then when you have your own little kid, you're like, oh, this is different, right? For me anyway. And I was like, oh, this is a different thing. And yeah. I love my dogs totally, but this is a different thing that I have for this kid. And exactly like, it's a crazy thing to say, but you would work through any problems that came up. But if for whatever reason I ever found myself having to make a choice, it'd be like, well, <laughs> there, <laughs> there is, is no choice. choice. Mm. That, that's that yeah. right. And, and that can be one of the weirdest things when you do encounter people that don't feel the same like that, where their dog's harassing their kid or tormenting their kid and stuff like that. And you're like, hey, this is, you need to fix this. You, you, your child is in danger from this dog. And they're like, oh, but I don't want to do anything to the dog. And it's like, oh man, but the dog wants to do shit to your kid. Mm. Like it's really yeah. bizarre to me because it obviously my feelings like that are, I would say normal, but not required of everybody or not, well, I don't even know the right word. Like it's, it's not uniform. There are people who are outside of that and it's, it's shocking to see it, but there is absolutely a balance. And, and I think that overwhelmingly a healthy dog fully gets that and just sort of adapts into the home. And, and, you know, Valerie bloody thought Rip was her kid, you know, like, and they understand and appreciate that in the same way when like you see, you know, you Moon Pie didn't have her babies at your place, but you see when a dog gets pregnant and has its babies, then it's like, no, fuck you. These like these things are more important. Like if I have to choose between who's getting allocated my time and resources, these babies are not you getting my my special affection or me working for you because mm. I'm busy being a mother. And I I think that dogs, because they do it, I think they understand and appreciate it. They're as adaptive. Well. They're very adaptive. Yeah. And that's how dogs have been so yeah. successful over millions of years. They they have mastered adaptation. Yeah. And, but yeah. I, I really yeah, do it's... think they look at that situation and go, this is a new baby. Like a healthy, you know, normal dog looks at that situation and goes, this new baby in the house is going to steal from my attention, but I accept it, right, because yeah. this is this is the way it goes. And I think that we have genetically engineered dogs that feel that way. Like that's we've selected for them because they're the ones that we want. They survive in the home. Yeah, I was grateful that we came in with the baby and all three dogs were just like, all right, cool. And I, I'm pretty sure we talked about mm. this when you were out. My, my Sheba is not a nice dog. Like he's, <laughs> he's like, like with kids specifically, he's bit children before he's never drawn blood on kids, but my husband and I, we had some pretty serious conversations about what we were going to do with him. If it, you know, if it didn't turn out mm -hmm. all right. Cause it's the, the behavior I've seen from him in the past, it wasn't fear-based. It was very much like, oh, I think small, I can bite it. How's he he's gone? not, he, he's not, he's no different. Yeah. He's like, like, she's just part of the family and nothing she does phases him. It's the strangest thing. Cause he's such a quirky, weird dog. I, I wouldn't trust him around any like little kids we had over the house, you know, like when she has friends over, he's, he's going to be put away somewhere. Yeah. Um, but he's fine with her. Like he's, you know, who knows if that'll change, but it's uh, as of right now, all three dogs are great. Actually, the the worst is Rue, not because she's she's not like uh, aggressive to the baby or anything, but she's just so oblivious about her surroundings. <laughs> like she's just so not careful. At least Moonpie knows how to be careful 
and I'll step on her and smush her. Um, but yeah, yeah, all three dogs have been pretty cool about it. I think that's always been yeah. the biggest issue that my I have with my own dogs is they can kick into drive and they'll knock me over, you know, like they'll knock anyone over. So mm-hmm. like that's just management and that's just common fucking mm-hmm. sense. Like anybody that's like, no, I trust my dog completely. I'm like, you're an idiot. You, you Like it's definitely it, not like my, if my dog sees a bird, he'll jump off of a fucking cliff to chase a bird. He's also not going to care about knocking over a kid over that cliff with him at the same time. Like that's yeah. just not how his brain works. And he's the most sweetest loving Creature loves rip, but he'd kill him by accident. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's yeah. Well, that was it, and or or hurt you by accident because I I ended up having a, a C-section. So I came home and I was like weak, and then had this little baby. And Andy was there. Andy was great, but it's still like my dogs are used to me being the cut the shit person, right? <laughs> and especially with my my two Staffords, they they can be wild if you let them be wild. Yeah. Like just just running around in the house and. My parents offered to take all three dogs for us when we were in the hospital. They ended up taking Bamba, but I had them leave the the girls at the house and come take them out because they'll hurt themselves. Like with no rules, they just, Moonpie sprained her back at my mom's once, just like running up and down the stairs a hundred times in a day with no one telling her not to. I had to create rest her for two weeks because she just like like strained her back and couldn't move. Moonpie, what I didn't expect was how weird moon pie got when I was pregnant. Mm. Like you were talking about Valerie going through her false pregnancy. So with, for those that don't know, I bred moon pie. She had puppies and like three months after she had puppies, I got pregnant. So I don't know if it was me being pregnant or her coming off having puppies, but she got like weird about play with me. And I took my dogs up to uh, CJ to do a private lesson with him over the summer and we got up there and she would not play with me, mm. like wanted nothing to do with me and just was like that until probably till Ellie was born. Yeah. Like she just, it was like, she was like, I don't know if she was afraid of hurting me or if I just smelled weird or what, but she, our play just went out the window, all our spring pole work. Like I'm still building her back up on the spring pole. She just kind of lost yeah. interest to do anything like that. You know, dogs especially female dogs in the house and pregnant women, that is one of the opportunity, the times where I wish we could communicate with dogs on a much deeper level and go like, what is going on here? How, mm. Why are you mm. doing these things? And like with Jane pregnant now, Valerie even like at night will get on, on the bed and press her ear against Jane's belly. And she did that with Rip as well. Like she does these really quirky little things. Like it's very clear she's aware that she's pregnant and like I would love to better understand her understanding of that situation and be able to say like, what are you doing when you do that? Like, what yeah. are you listening for in there? Or is this just affection and it happens <clears throat> to look like you're listening? It's so interesting to watch, but her behavior is very different and she gets very sooky with Jane and, and it's like, you know, I would love to better understand, is there an element of jealousy in that? Or is it that she's and jealousy in what way? Like, is she jealous that she's pregnant and she's not? Or is it that there's, oh, okay, there's going to be another mouth in the house and that's going to take away from my attention. So I want to get as much of it as I can. Like, I don't know. I, I think I, Jane probably just mm. smells different. And I mean, their olfaction is so extremely powerful that when you're pumping those different hormones yeah. out, like you smell like a different person. Yeah. So, and, but why does she care? Like, why is she because so- you, Because it's, well, I mean, they're probably empathetic to the fact that it, yeah, it's so a th- hormone expressing pregnancy. Yeah. But when you're used to smelling a certain way to a dog and all of a sudden your biological structure is changing, 
changing and the dog can smell that, they're probably thinking, holy shit, you don't smell like you. Yeah, something's changed. Mm. Because I've never I seen- I actually wonder, I wonder how much for Moon Pie, how much of it was just residual hormones from her being pregnant. Because mm-hmm. I, I spayed her over the hormones summer. Are a, right? Hormones are yeah. incredibly diverse in, yeah. in the way they make yeah. you behave. I mean- you know, Tell like, me about it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I mean, yeah. it, you know, like drops in testosterone or estrogen or anything like that. I mean, Narelle talks about it quite religiously because, I mean, that's part of her study in um, her natural health world. But she says that if you don't get your hormones right and they're out of whack, you can completely have a change of personality based on where your hormone levels yeah. are at that point in time. And that's what I was seeing in her. She was a different dog. Mm. She no drive, no play drive at all for any toys. Mm. But we ended up spaying her because I, you know, I, I bred her once because that's what the breeder and I agreed to when I bought her and not going to breed her again. So I ended up spaying her and she got much better after that. After she recovered from the spay, she was close to back to who she used to be. But also like I brought one of her daughters home. So how much of what I'm seeing is like mm. that competition. I've never lived with a mother daughter before. And now, you know, now her daughter is a year old, just over a year old. So I'm yeah. wondering, there's, there's, so, there's so much change. I, who knows? There's so much to that in dogs that we just don't understand. And mm. and because we're barely beginning to understand it in people, like it's, it's, it's a huge deal in my old community of dealing with brain injury. Like as I was finishing in the army, they had the CSIRO, which is like a big uh, government science agency come out and do these tests on us. And we had to wear all these sensors and um, just go about normal daily training. And I was doing this one thing on this, like it's an MOE house. It's a house that you can blow up, right? And they rebuild it overnight where you practice explosive entry and that kind of thing. Mm. And we use the smallest charge we have, a snib charge, which is just designed to blow out a lock. That's all. A little tiny explosive charge that blows out a lock. The door stays intact. Mm-hmm. And we blew that and I looked at their, they're reading the sensors live. The guy's looking at his laptop and we blew it and you're standing like within a meter of it, right? No big deal. And I looked at the guy, look at his laptop and his face, no one will be able to see my face podcast, but he was like, oh, fuck, looking at the force that hits all of us, right? And afterwards they were like, you guys are killing yourselves. Like you're constantly giving yourselves brain Concussions, damage. Yeah. yeah. And mm. then they tried to do the same thing about, okay, how, how can we stop these guys damaging their ears when a 50 cal flies over your head? If you're sitting in the front of a car where well, we got those Mad Max style SRV, with the 50 cal that fires over the top of you, you're dead directly under the percussion. Oh, getting muzzle flashed. Mm. They end up telling us that there's absolutely nothing they can do to protect our ears. They're like, you could wear all the hearing protection that you want. That shockwave is penetrating your skull. No wonder you guys have all yeah. got tinnitus. Well, no, but so tinnitus is the obvious one, right? But mm. then what they're figuring out now is like all these guys with PTSD and all this kind of stuff, but their hormones are fucked because your pituitary gland inside your head that mm. regulates all that mm. kind of stuff is completely damaged. And so there's so many people who had these like giant like what they get diagnosed with PTSD because they've had incidences in their life that would you know you would look at and warrant like oh I've got like depression type symptoms and I've spent you know my entire adult life fighting in wars and they go oh well fair enough like you've got PTSD and then they can once they regulate their hormones the guys are like oh actually I'm feel great like and it's it's just because my pituitary gland has been getting rattled around in my brain mm. for my whole life, and I've been getting these con- like a mild. I've spent twelve years with a mild concussion, right, and just rattling it around. One of the guys, 
I wish I could put the video in our Facebook group. We've got a video from an Apache of a guy, long story short, but has to make a decision to knock himself out with an explosive wall charge and sends his team away and you see him just go to sleep. If it's filmed from an Apache, he blows the charge and you see him fall asleep standing up. Like just, it's a, it's a shape charge, so no... A uh, frag comes to him, but the yep. entire blast hits you, and he just goes straight unconscious, standing on his feet, and just doesn't even go backwards; just mm. falls straight down, like just collapses down. And then the Apache's filming him. His team run past him, and like a minute later, he gets up, kind of shakes, and goes and gets <laughs> back into the battle. So, like, you look at that guy, and you go, "Dude, your brain did a hard restart. Mm. Like, you were someone pulled the plug out of the wall." mid-processing and now you're expected to keep going and the long-term personality changes they're only beginning to understand now that that is totally hormone related from concussions to the brain wow and now we're thinking like oh well like we can just desex a dog and expect it to be the same person Mm. like take away its entire uh, ability to yeah and like oh you can just cut out a dog's testicles and expect him to be the same personality as he was yesterday Mm. like not a fucking chance yeah well karen becker goes into great detail about that when she whistle blew the effects of uh, neutering and spaying young dogs yeah so like there's you know it's a deeper conversation than uh, my fucking pea brains able to handle but there's like i just think that there's so much in that space that we just do not understand Mm. and we barely understand it in people there's not a fucking chance that we understand it in dogs and diagnosing like depression in people is difficult enough to distinguish whether you are like depressed or whether you have a hormonal problem or you know all these kind of things Mm. how the fuck do you diagnose that in dogs that can't the, all we can do is read the behavior of rather than like have a conversation with and say like, Hey, how do you actually feel about this? Like we're only able to look at their, right. at their body language. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so fMRI is changing that a little bit at the moment for people and for dogs. Like yeah. we're, we're able to brain diagnose and or brain map a little bit better, but still, you know, the science is new. That's right. Mm. Yeah. So like, I think it that's one of the things when someone invents the helmet that I can put on and have an actual conversation with my dog, training is going to be irrelevant. I know how to fucking train a dog to do stuff. That's mm. easy, right? It's yeah. when you get into like, hey, how do you feel about this? That's yeah. what I'm really interested in. Like, hey, here's a peculiar behavior that you're doing, like pressing your head against my pregnant wife's belly. What are you doing that for? Mm. And then and then to hear the silly answer from the dog, like, I just like it. <laughs> yeah. No good reason. <laughs> like, we spent a billion dollars making this machine for you to say you just like it. Yep. Anyway, that's my Yeah. Opinion. Yeah, I never never considered hormones until uh I became a different person last year. Cause I yeah. was. I had to like stop taking on I, I had to stop taking aggressive dogs because I just wasn't clear headed at all. I couldn't put myself to the task. And I ended up really just taking almost no clients a month before I was due. Cause I was like, I can't I just can't help anyone right now. I'm just all over the place. And then probably about two weeks ago that I started really feeling back to my, my normal self. A colleague of mine, Jen, <laughs> in, in Melbourne was telling me a similar story. And she said, I didn't even know I was pregnant until I was sitting in a consult and I just started crying <laughs> halfway through it. And I said, really? And she said, oh, yeah. Like she said, I did half a dozen of them. And she's thinking, what the fuck is wrong with me? Like they're telling me stories about their dog. And she said, I just start bursting into tears. And she said, I'm so sorry. I just never happens. I just don't understand what's going on. And she said, one of the ladies in the consult goes, oh, darling, you're pregnant. And she goes, no, no, no. You have to have sex to be pregnant. <laughs> and she goes, I'm telling you, you're pregnant. You need, she said, you've got color in your cheeks. And she said, trust me, I'm a midwife. I know these things. She said, go and get tested. You're pregnant. And she, and goes, she was eight and a half months pregnant. Like, oh, <laughs> <God."> <laughs>
yeah. Miraculous conception. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, all right. We're getting silly. Yeah, yeah. So did you change business names when you bought this new place or is it say it's still J-Hump's dog training? J-Hump's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I thought we were going to get through this without you guys. No fucking way. You were always Well, now you got to explain it. you got to nope, explain it. Nope, Nobody's nope, gonna, nope, nope. Everyone's going to think it's this gross thing. <laughs> uh, Jennifer what? Banks, formerly Jennifer Humphreys. So, it's the other way around oh sorry that's you're sorry yeah that's right that's right it's actually that's why it's so confusing yeah that's right so you're officially j hump yeah (laughs) i am uh humphrey yes yes humphrey that's my that's my my married name yeah yeah so uh, is it the same business name how can people get in contact with you give us all the plug plug all the info yeah, yeah. So I used to be Banks Canine Solutions. I am now the Right Paw. We're right in Princeton, Massachusetts. It's therightpaw.com. We do group class. We do private in your home, privates here. I do virtual stuff. I also have a GRC club. I started that last year, which was super fun. Hold. It's on hold right now just because of COVID and, and whatnot. We're trying to get numbers to die down before we start practicing again. But I've got a, a pretty decent club. We usually meet Sunday mornings, do like a two-hour practice. I've got Jay Jack coming out also, which I'm super excited about. He's coming out in August for a seminar. Uh, you can register for that right on the website. What else am I doing? My email is jen at the right pod.com. It's just J-E-N at the right pod.com. And I'm also working on um, bringing Cameron Ford out to do his uh, canine cognition. Oh, yeah, good. Seminar, awesome. Which I'm excited about. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so excited hey, about hey Jen, so, just yeah. before we do wrap up, how did Massachusetts get its name? You know, I had a feeling that question would come up and I should have researched it. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. I've uh, wondered it is that probably for years something and I've been too lazy to look, so I thought I'd ask you. It's probably something Native American related. Mm. There's Sound, a lot yeah. of like, yeah. But yeah, we I have, have a lot idea. of Aboriginal name towns in Australia. So like Wollongong and Wollongaloo. Wollongaloo. That's my favorite. Yeah. So there's a lot of, yeah, <laughs> a lot of Aboriginal or Indigenous Australian traditional names around Australia. So I, I gather that you probably would with... Sounds like it. Massachusetts. It's a, it's a fun yeah, thing to yeah, say. Yeah. Hard, yeah. hard thing to spell. Fun thing to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fun words to say. Because <laughs> everyone, everyone should, uh, there is wicked smart. Wicked smart. Wicked smart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're also right outside of Worcester, which is uh, a lot of people have a hard time saying that one or spelling Worcester. that one. Yeah. Worcester. Yeah. Hey, again, thanks very much. I mean it. I appreciate you inviting me out there the first time. That kind of set a ball, that set things into motion in doing seminars sort of all over the US. So really appreciate you taking a, a risk there. I know it sold out and we, it all went well, but you still took a big risk. <laughs> it was great. I mean, yeah, the, the riskiest part was uh, – I didn't know you. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think it came about because I wanted I asked you when you were coming to the States and someone was like, when you host him, ha ha. And you were like, yep. And I was like, oh, is that really the only way? Had some strange man in your home. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. To where I got my attack Sheba. He was <laughs> Yeah, he followed me everywhere in the house. Did like, he? Yeah, yeah, like with that that little stalker. Yeah. Tried to bite he me on the not. foot at one point. I had to run away up <laughs> he the does stairs. Not. He does yeah. not like Pat. <laughs> I regularly, yeah, no, that was. I regularly get bitten by the dogs of the people. That I, was host about, me. I was about to say, like <laughs> Misha's dogs bit you, and Jen's dogs tried to bite you, and it's because I never take them seriously because they're like not attack style dogs. Yeah, and people are like, "Oh, be careful of him," and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah," and then 
Kabam. You're going to give me a nasty gum. Douchebag. <laughs> yeah. but, but hey, I mean, you coming out was, it was great for me, not just from everything I learned and was able to apply, but also the the people I was able to connect with yeah. in my local area. You know, before that I had done a lot of traveling fairly far to learn from other trainers, which is fun. And I connected with trainers that way, but it was really cool to like learn who locally was into training the way I want to train. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's yeah, the fun cool. thing about that the was... seminar scene is networking and hooking up with people. You know, I mean, yeah. I really enjoy that. That for me is the most fun about seminars is, A, you know, you get to disseminate new knowledge and apply new skills, but also hanging out with people and learning who they are and what they're doing and developing new business relationships and new friends and new contacts. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Like I miss it after it happens. Like I kind of get the seminar blues after it's done. The after hours time is. Yeah. 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 Drinkies around the fireplace. Yeah. Mm. But I think that networking after hours and that's where the good dog talk happens. And, you know, you always feel bad for people who have to rush away and then everyone else sticks around for two hours and it's the best info that you give. And then the next morning you go to like, hey, you know, let's recap on what we discussed yesterday because you guys that didn't weren't able to stick around for whatever reason missed out on all this info. Yeah. 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 And that's that's part of why I was excited to be on, because I like if you are a trainer in central Massachusetts, and you're listening to this, I want to know who you are. Cause like, like I said, we're in the land of plenty right now with pet dog training. And there are only so many trainers in my area that I'm comfortable referring clients to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I really would like to grow a list of client uh, of trainers that are trusted that I can send people to. So I don't have to tell them I can't help you for three months or whatever. Yeah. So reach out. So reach out to yeah. Jay Humps. Yep. Jay Humps school of dog training. I feel bad now. Cause I called you Jim Banks at the start. So what are you going to call this episode? Um, Jay Humps or Jen Banks? You can surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I often, sometimes when I'm coming up with a title for the show, I'll listen to the show in post-edit and I'm sort of sitting there and I'm going, you know, like Pat and I have agreed on a title and I'll say, oh, it's this. And now I listen to the show and think, no, nah, I've actually got a better hook line for the yeah. show. So <laughs> this one's yeah, called Yeah, you have to surprise Commando. me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Not, not that, but yeah. That's it. Hey, thanks for doing it. Appreciate you yeah, yeah. making the time. And- I'm doing the wrap up. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is getting to Patreon and watch one of my little documentaries that I'm making now. Mm. Having fun doing your little interview series where you run around the neighborhood and just randomly sticking something in people's faces. Just making people tell me stuff and then editing it all together. I'm enjoying it. It's fun. It's good. Yeah, the information's Um, been great. Another way to support the show is you could just buy me a Yeti dog bed if you want, because I want one of those. <laughs> Probably get Glenn one too. He's looking at me like, what is my <laughs> Yeti? I'm thinking, what am I, fucking just a bit of sliced liver? <laughs> <laughs> or you could get into Teespring. Yes. We'd get some cool merch. We've got some new stuff about to go into there. We've got a comp. We've got yep. a comp going online. It's going to be decided today. Yeah, it's probably done by the time you're listening to this. Yeah. As well as, no, that's it. That's the only way to the show. Yeah, get wall tapestries. Yeah. If you want to get in contact with us, group source information in the Facebook group, that's probably the best way to get info. Uh, It's the Canine Paradigm Discussion Group. Or if it's of a personal nature or feedback, Mm. shoot us an email. We are info at the Canine Paradigm. Or we're being active on Instagram now. Yeah, Glenn's taken over Instagram. I was neglecting it. Glenn's taken over. I just... I just don't like spending so much time on social media. I don't understand Mm. it. Anyway, that's my cross to bear, guys. Yep. (laughs) That's it. Goodbye. (laughs) 